Thank you. You may be seated. Please take your Bibles and open up to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I will speak tonight on the title, An Apostolic View of a New Testament Church. From Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Dear Father, tonight we look to you to help us to have a correct view of a New Testament church. Show us the Apostle Paul's view of a New Testament church, that we may clear up some of the myths that fly across this land about what a New Testament church is. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I was involved in strength training for a great many years. I uh, was a fitness director for three YMCAs uh, in the strength training department. I owned and operated my own strength training facility, a health and fitness center in the village of Belport here on Long Island. And I noticed throughout all those years involved in strength training that there's several myths about strength training. Uh, one of the myths is that uh, if, you, if you drink a lot of uh, uh, protein-mixed drinks and uh, work out a lot, you'll get big. You'll look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. That is a complete myth. Uh, strength training, as far as the results of building muscle mass, has a lot to do with genetics. The length and size of your muscle bellies and your tendon attachments determine how much muscle mass you can build as an individual. So that is a myth. Not everybody can ever look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a myth. Another myth is that heavy weights bulk you up and light weights tone you up. That's a total myth. Your muscles have no idea whether you're lifting a heavy weight or a lighter weight. 
The amount makes no difference. Your muscles react to the amount that you tear down the muscle fibers themselves. And in actuality, a lighter weight going slow and smooth, you'll have better results as far as building muscle mass is concerned. Another myth is the more sets you do in strength training, the more strength you build. Your muscles have no idea how many sets you do in your exercise program. And even if you could tell them, they wouldn't care. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. They just react to the level of stress you tear and rip those muscle fibers down. The more you rip them down, the more they're going to rebuild. So the key is to go to what's called muscle failure, just to fatigue it and tear it down all the way. Now, if you tear your muscle fibers down all the way on the first set, it's impossible to tear them down more than all the way on the second set or the third set. Therefore, it's a myth that more sets build more strength. Another myth is that the more weight you lose, the more body weight you lose, the better results you have as far as health and fitness. That's a total myth. There are three types of weight in the body. There's water, there's fat, and there's muscle. I've had clients come in and they gained weight, so they stopped the exercise program. They didn't know that the weight they gained, let's say they gained 10 pounds of muscle, and they only lost five pounds of fat. Therefore, on the scale, they actually gained five pounds of body weight. So they stopped exercising. But little do they know that the 10 pounds of muscle that they put upon their body burns more calories every day. And they're actually healthier than when they started. It's a myth. The more weight you lose, the better results you have as far as health and fitness. That's a myth. There's a lot of myths out there as far as strength training. In fact, I believe some of these myths too until I found out the correct view of strength training through ACE, the American Council on Exercise, through Nautilus International. They address these myths. I've been around the church also for a while, not as long as others, but for a while. I served as a minister at the Blue Point Bible Church here on Long Island for several years with Pastor Claire Chandler. I served uh, with uh, uh, Pastor Baker at West Windsor Baptist Church uh, during my Bible college years. I uh, spent uh, two years upstate at Greenfield Center Baptist Church as an interim pastor there and spoke at several churches uh, for the Conservative Baptist Association all across New York. And I've come in, across a lot of different myths about what a New Testament church is. In fact, recently, within a year, I went to this one church upstate New York, and, I, and I, I was there to fill in the pulpit. And there was one deacon there and his wife. And so I asked him, well, what, what had happened? Is, is everything okay? You know. And he said, well, the pastor left with all the people. <laughs> I, said, I said, well, whatever caused the pastor to leave with all the people? He said, I don't know. They said something about they wanted a New Testament church. Now, I don't know if, if, if he didn't understand what a New Testament church is or the people that left didn't understand what the New Testament church is, but the bottom line is there's a lot of myths as to what a New Testament church is. A New Testament church is not a building. 
A New Testament church is not only, does not only consist of uh, uh, Pentecostal Christians who speak in tongues. A New Testament church is not uh, uh, just consists of people who have been baptized in the name of Jesus and not the Father and the Holy Spirit. These are myths out there that people actually believe. A New Testament church is not a sanctuary for perfect people. And a New Testament church is not a social club. These are myths. Some people believe that this is a New Testament church. And many will believe these myths until they find out the correct view of a New Testament church. And I believe the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 has a correct view of a New Testament church. And I believe in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Philippians, Paul describes a New Testament church. Verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Here we see Paul describing, given a description of a New Testament church. Number one, the New Testament church consists of saints in Christ Jesus. And we already, talk, already talked about the fact that uh, saints are not perfect people. Uh, they're born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's, let us look a little more specifically in the book of Acts, chapter 16, which talks about these saints in Philippi. This very church that Paul is addressing are mentioned in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 12, we see clearly that saints in Christ Jesus are those that God caused to hear the gospel. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 through 12 says this, And they passed through the uh, Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. <clears throat> and passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now you'll have to know <clears throat> uh, from verse 14, uh, it tells us that Philippi, or verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So Philippi is in Macedonia. The Holy Spirit forbade them to speak the word in Asia and then it says in verse 10, and when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia or Philippi, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The saints in Christ Jesus, number one, are those that God caused 
to hear the gospel message that Jesus Christ came to purchase his people on the cross by shedding his blood for their sins. That is the gospel message, that they can have a life and a life more abundantly in Christ because of what Christ did on the cross. Saints in Christ Jesus, especially these saints in Philippi, are those that God caused to hear the gospel. Saints in Christ Jesus are not those who by chance ran into the gospel message. Isn't that a beautiful thing? To think that, that we as born-again believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we as saints in Christ Jesus, consist of those whom God has caused us to come in contact, to hear the gospel. Not everybody hears the gospel. The Bible says, he, let he who has an ear, let him hear. And God has given us not only the gospel, but he has given us ears to hear the gospel message. It consists of those that God has caused to hear the gospel. It wasn't by chance that we heard the gospel and come to know Christ. God caused the gospel to come into our lives. Amen? We see here another description as Paul describes the New Testament church as saints in Christ Jesus, not only are those that God caused to hear the gospel, but also in, in uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, it tells us that these saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi are those that the Lord opened their hearts to respond to the gospel. Acts chapter 16, verse 13 and 14 say this, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Paul was speaking to her about the gospel, the glorious gospel, the mystery that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, preached on the world, received up into glory, and coming again. This is the gospel message. And it, uh, we see here Paul, in describing the saints in Christ Jesus, in Acts chapter 16, those that are in Philippi, like Lydia here, are those that the Lord opened their hearts to respond to the gospel. It wasn't by chance that we heard the gospel, and it wasn't by chance that we responded to the gospel. It was the cause of Christ. He caused us to hear the gospel as saints in Christ Jesus, and he caused our hearts to be opened to the message of the gospel. We see here in Acts 16 that it consists not only of Lydia, a seller of purple clothes, because she was a saint in Christ Jesus here in that leading city of Macedonia, Philippi, but also the slave girl, the fortune teller, who had an evil spirit 
she was also a saint in Christ Jesus as Paul cast the demon out of her. And she became a part of that fellowship, a part of being a saint in Christ Jesus in Philippi. And then we also know of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. We see also the Philippian jailer, how God caused him to hear the gospel message. As Paul and Silas were in prison, singing hymns to the God who redeemed them. And he witnessed that by the cause of Christ, not by chance. And as the doors and gates broke throughout those thundering, uh, that thundering evening of earthquakes, it wasn't by chance that Paul stayed as that Philippian jailer put that knife to his body. It wasn't by chance that he heard the gospel that he asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Because the Lord opened his heart to respond to the gospel. These are saints in Christ Jesus. These, truly, uh, these things truly consist of every saint in Christ Jesus, not just the ones in Philippi. Perhaps you're here today and you never really heard the gospel message very clearly. Well, God is causing you to hear the gospel tonight. Amen? That there is salvation in Christ from sin. Amen? And those that the Lord opened their hearts. Maybe God is doing a work even tonight in opening someone's heart to receive and respond to the gospel. It's not of works. It's by grace. Paul describes the New Testament church in Philippians chapter 1, not only as saints in Christ Jesus, but also back in Philippians chapter 1, he says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. When Paul describes a New Testament church, he does, just doesn't describe the saints that come together. He includes the overseers and deacons. And there's a great myth, not only as to what a saint is, but also there's a great myth as to how many overseers there should be in a church. But Paul's view of a New Testament church is that there be more than one overseer in that local assembly of believers. It says overseers, as in more than one. There weren't many churches in Philippi. There was only one that he was addressing. And it consists of more than one. But notice with me in Acts chapter 15 that there was another New Testament church with more than one overseer. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, says this, And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders, plural concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the con conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. 
And look at verse 4. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, they were received by the church, singular, and the apostles and the elders, plural, and they reported all that God had done with them. The New Testament church in Jerusalem had more than one overseer. It's a myth. There's many churches today who only have one and believe that that's all it should be and teach it. But the Bible teaches that there should be more than one overseer in a New Testament church. Not only the New Testament church in Jerusalem had more than one overseer, but notice with me in Titus 1.5, uh, Paul told Titus to appoint more than one elder in every church in every city. More than one. But let us clear up the myth. Because you see, a lot of churches are getting away from more than one overseer because they believe, and I heard this recently, that it becomes a dictatorship and there's no accountability because the elders rule. But let us notice together from the Word of God that the Bible teaches, teaches that the elders have obligations or the overseers have obligations to the congregation. There is a system of checks and balances here. But what are those obligations of the overseers in the churches to the congregation? What are those obligations? Well, number one, Titus 1.7 teaches that every overseer in a local church is obligated to the congregation to be above reproach. Nobody should be able to go to an overseer knowing that there's sin in his life. That overseer is to be above reproach. That is one obligation of the overseers to the congregation. In order to be an overseer, they must be above reproach. They are obligated to the congregation to be above reproach. Another obligation of overseers in a local church, in 1 Peter 5, 3, it tells us that they should be an example to the flock and not lord over their authority. They are obligated to the flock to be an example of a Christian soldier, of a pilgrim in a foreign land, of one who holds fast the faithful word that he's been taught. They are obligated to be an example to the congregation and not lord over their authority. But then we see there's another obligation of, uh, of the overseers to the congregation. In Acts 20, 28, it says that the overseers are obligated to the congregation to be on guard as a shepherd. To guard the sheep. They are obligated to the sheep, to the church, to protect and guide and feed and lead them where they need to go. These are obligations. There is accountability with more than one overseer in each local church. But now let us not leave out the fact that 
there are obligations of the congregation to the overseers. And what are those obligations? Well, we see in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 that the congregation, the church, the people, the sheep are obligated to appreciate and esteem the overseers very highly. To appreciate the overseers and to esteem them very highly. And there's a balance there. Not like the doctrine of the Nicolaitans where they put the overseers on a pedestal. Equal as God. Overseers are just mere men that have been called to a special task by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to oversee his work in the local church. But the congregation is obligated to appreciate and to esteem them highly. And then 1 Timothy 5.17 tells us that the congregation is obligated to its elders or overseers to consider them worthy of double honor. The congregation is obligated to the overseers to consider them worthy of double honor. And then we see another obligation to the church, to the overseers, is that in Hebrews 13, 7, it tells the congregation to imitate the faith of the overseers. The congregation is obligated to imitate the faith of the overseers. Another obligation of the church to the overseers, Hebrews 13, 7, says to obey and submit to those who keep watch over your souls. That's the overseers. But don't leave out the last part. You know why the last part of, of Hebrews 13, 7 says, so that they may not oversee with grief. If you don't obey and submit to the overseers, they're going to be serving with grief. You know why? Because God has called them to lead, to feed, to guide, and to protect. And once a sheep goes astray from obeying and submitting to the shepherd, to the overseer, they have to continue and leave the flock and go out for that one. And that's going to cause them grief as they see that dear sheep not obeying and submitting to the will of God. The congregation is also obligated to not receive an accusation against the overseers except by two or three witnesses. They're obligated not to receive anything, an accusation against an overseer. And then we see also in 1 Thessalonians 5.25 that the congregation is obligated to pray for the overseers. Oh, how the church needs to pray that these overseers would oversee correctly and lead and guide and feed and protect correctly. And prayer can help. So we see a balance. Yes, as Paul describes the New Testament church, it consists of not only saints that come together in a house or meet in a field, 
but saints in Christ Jesus with overseers. More than one that God has called to appoint these men in that office. But notice with me that Paul only not only describes what a New Testament church is in, in the sense that it's saints and overseers and deacons, but then in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul shares the testimony of a New Testament church. Paul shares the testimony of a New Testament church. What is the testimony? What should the testimony be of a New Testament church? Well, we see in verse 3 and 4, Paul states this about this New Testament church in Philippi. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every remembrance of you. We see here that the testimony of a New Testament church is one that causes other brethren to rejoice. If it's a true New Testament church, if it's saints that have been, uh, that have been caused to hear the gospel, if it's saints that the Lord has opened their heart to receive and respond to the gospel, not themselves, if it consists of overseers and deacons and it's operating efficient, efficiently as a New Testament church, this should cause other people to rejoice because of what God is doing. The New Testament church at Ephesus caused Paul to rejoice. As we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, and Paul says, I rejoice at the church in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, out of all the problems in Corinth, Paul can write to the church in Corinth and say, I rejoice as to what God is doing in your midst because it's a New Testament church. Out of the problems in the church in Rome, in Romans 1.8, Paul can write and say, you've caused me to rejoice as to what God is doing in your midst. It's very clear, the Bible teaches that a New Testament church is one that should cause others to rejoice as to what God is doing. But that's not all. Paul shares the testimony of a New Testament church, not only that it causes others to rejoice about what God is doing, but also in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul shares that the testimony of a New Testament church consists of that local church participating in the gospel ministry. Paul says in verse 5 in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. A true New Testament church participates in the gospel ministry. It's not a social club. They don't come up here and preach current events. They get to the heart of the message, which is the gospel, that Christ came into this world not to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. They participate in the gospel ministry. The New Testament church in Rome participated in the gospel ministry in Romans 12, 1 through 7. The New Testament church in Corinth, even amidst all the problems, was told to participate in the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 24. 
The New Testament church in Galatia was told to participate in the gospel in Galatians 6.10. The New Testament church at Ephesus participated in the gospel in Ephesians 2.10. We've been saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast, right? But we've been called out of the mark. Uh, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus as a church unto good works. You cannot have good works unless you're participating in the gospel ministry. This is the ministry that God reconciled the world to Christ and called and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Not only did Paul share the testimony of a New Testament church in the sense that they caused others to rejoice and they participated in the gospel, but also the testimony of that church in verse 6, Paul uh, Paul's view of a New Testament church was that Jesus began the good work in them. That was the testimony for Christ. It says in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, who began the good work ourselves, Paul didn't say, I am confident of this very thing, those that walked the aisle, those that said the sinner's prayer, those that did something in and of themselves to begin a good work in themselves. No, Paul cut that to the heart and he said this, I am coming of this very thing that he who began a good work in you, which is Christ. This is the testimony of a New Testament church. It's a work that God started. And you know what Paul said also? I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, that's Jesus, he began a good work. Paul says he will accomplish it. He'll finish it. He'll perfect it until Christ comes again. This is the testimony of a New Testament church. It's saints. It's overseas. It's deacons. They cause others to rejoice. They participate in the gospel ministry. And it is evident that Christ began the good work in their hearts, not themselves. It wasn't something that they came together and, hey, let's get a building. Christ began the good work, and guess what? He shall accomplish it. Amen? Paul not only gives a description of the church and shares the testimony of a New Testament church, but Paul also gives a prayer for a New Testament church in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 1. He says in verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul gives a prayer for a New Testament church. Number one, for their love to abound more and more. Nowadays it's said that we have many meanings for the word love. We love pizza. We love cars. We love things. But the best definition I ever heard for the word love is by Pastor Chandler at the Blue Point Bible Church. This is a, the best definition I've ever heard of love. Love is actively seeking the highest value of another, even at your own expense. It's really a biblical definition. And greater love has no man than this. Then one lay down his life for his friends. Then one actively seek the highest value of another, even at his own expense. 
Paul's prayer for a New Testament church is that that kind of love should abound more and more. These saints in Christ Jesus, these overseers, these deacons, they should actively seek the highest value of another at their own expense more and more. To sum up the law, it says to love the Lord thy God with all our hearts. Are we actively seeking the highest value of God at our own expense? Are we doing it more and more? And we shall love our neighbors as ourselves. Are we actively seeking the highest value of our neighbor, even at our own expense? Paul prays that we should do it more and more. Paul gives a prayer for a New Testament church. That prayer consists that their love would abound more and more. But it also consists that they would abound more and more in real knowledge. It says in verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge. Colossians 1.9 <clears throat> says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the real knowledge that Paul's talking about. The knowledge of his will. Not just the knowledge of the world that puffeth up the mind. We can't read this as a textbook. It's a love letter from God to us. We should abound not only in love, but we should abound more and more in real knowledge, in the knowledge of his will for us. In the knowledge of his will, and that knowledge can only be found through the completed word of God. The Old Testament, because God never goes against his word. So anything that's in his will is in his word. Amen? So we see that Paul gives a prayer for a New Testament church, not only for their love to abound more and more, but that they would abound more and more in real knowledge, in the knowledge of God's will via his word. This book of the law shall not meditate, shall not uh, uh, depart out of our mouths, but we shall meditate in it day and night and then and only then shall our way be prosperous. And then and only then will we have good success in real knowledge as we meditate in the word of God. We see that Paul gives a prayer for a New Testament church for their love to abound, for their, for their knowledge of God's will to abound. And also, it says in verse 9, and all discernment that you may know and understand what is the depths of the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. Discernment. Why discernment? There are many false gospels out there proclaiming work salvation, proclaiming other deities, other Christs. Why did Paul pray that that church should abound in all discernment to understand things? in real knowledge and love, but all discernment. 
because there are wolves in sheep's clothing that are out to, uh, uh, to lead astray the flock. We need to be able to discern as we get this real knowledge and abound in love, the true gospel, the true shepherds and sheep and not the wolves. And also because our adversary that we're in this spiritual battle with, the devil, he is roaring and roaming about seeking to devour us, God's children. And we need to discern the ways of the devil. We need to be ready for this spiritual battle in Ephesians chapter 6 as we put on the whole armor of God. In love, and it involves abounding more and more in the real knowledge of the will of God. Paul prays, or gives a prayer for a New Testament church that they abound in love, that they abound in real knowledge, and that they abound in discernment and able to understand what they're learning. And then he gives the reasons for the prayer for a New Testament church in verse 10. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Listen, if we're not abounding in love more and more, if we're not uh, abounding in the real knowledge of the will of God, if, not, we're, if we're not abounding in discernment and able to understand these things, guess what? Uh, we're not going to be able to approve the things that are excellent according to the will and word of God. Guess what? In verse 10, uh, if we're not abounding in love and knowledge and discernment, according to verse 10, uh, we're not going to be too sincere with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we really believe that Jesus is alive and he rose again from the, from the dead and that he's coming again and we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds done in our body, whether good or bad? How sincere are we with our faith? Well, we're not going to be too sincere if we're not abounding in real love. We're not going to be too sincere if we're not abounding in the real knowledge of God's will. How sincere is our faith in Christ? And then it says also uh, in verse 10, if we're not abounding in love and real knowledge and discernment, in verse 10 Paul says, uh, we're not going to be blameless until the day of Christ. We're going to have blame. We're going to be. We're going to give an account. What, what, are we, what, what, what did we do uh, with those that God put across our path to minister to? With our love that we have, especially to those of the household of faith, what did we do? Did we actively seek their highest value at our own expense or not? What did we do with the Word of God, the guidebook for living and the instructions on life and godliness in Christ Jesus? What did we do with it? Did we abound more and more in the knowledge of his will or not? If we didn't, we're not going to be blameless until the day of Christ. And discernment. Can we understand what these depths are? Are we seeking to understand these spiritual things? Or do we just want the milk of the word and not the meat? Paul gives a prayer for the New Testament church and he gives the reasons so that they can approve the things that are excellent, so that they can be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. And then, in verse 11, Paul gives the power of a New Testament church. Paul gives the power of a New Testament church in verse 11. He says, Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
The power of a New Testament church is not a work of man. It's the filling of the fruit of righteousness. Have, have we been filled with the fruit of righteousness? Every true saint has. And if you are a saint, you're a part of the church. Therefore, you've been filled with the fruit of righteousness. And that is where we get our power from as a New Testament church. But notice with me in verse 11 that the fruit of this righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. It's not, uh, it's not any righteousness that we have. As Pastor mentioned this morning, it's not something that we did and kept it going. It's a work of Christ. And it's the power of Christ. It's by his grace, not just that saved us, that causes us to persevere in the faith as a New Testament church to participate in the gospel, for our love to abound, for us to grow and abound in real knowledge. It's by his grace for us to be able to discern and understand these things. That's by his grace. It says here that the power of a New Testament church is the filling of the fruit. God has filled us with the fruit of righteousness, and that righteousness comes through Christ Jesus. But notice with me in verse 11 that the power of a New Testament church is to the glory of God. It says in verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. There's no miraculous thing that God puts in a person to attract numbers and uh, build up bank accounts so that men can be lifted up. The power of a New Testament church and here's the test of whether or not it's a New Testament church. Does the men give the glory and praise to God? Or do they say, look what we have done? The power of a New Testament church is the filling of the fruit of righteousness. It's in the past tense. We have been filled with the fruit of righteousness. We have the power. We can do all things through Christ which strengthens us, but it better be done to his praise and glory. When I understood the correct view of strength training, I renewed my mind so that I can prove or disprove the myths. When we understand the correct view of a New Testament church, we will be able, and only then, we will be able to disprove the myths that a New Testament church is a building, that a New Testament church is a social club, that a New Testament church only consists of uh, Pentecostal tongue-speaking people who've been baptized in the name of Jesus. We need to abound in real knowledge of the Word of God. We need to abound in love, actively seek the highest value of another at our own expense. And we need to abound in understanding of the will of God and the scriptures in our hearts and lives. But only then will we be able to discern and to disprove these myths of a New Testament church, of what it is. I trust that this study has encouraged you as it has me, because starting that New Testament church out east 
is a venture, and we're all going to be held accountable. We're all a part of this. And we need to see to it that it remains and stays a New Testament church and not anything else. Let us pray. Dear Father, we look to you, Father, for strength and guidance to help us to abound in love, to actively seek your highest value at our own expense, and then to abound in the love for our neighbor, especially those who are of the household of faith, that we may actively seek their highest value at our own expense. Help us to abound in real knowledge of your will according to the word of God. Help us to abound in all discernment. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.